looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Alex, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 67 of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. As always, I am, you guessed it, your host, Jeff Duoskin. Great to have you back for another incredible week. And this week is the most incrediblest. Yes, that's right. We've got such a fun guest for you today. Scott Valentine is with us, ladies and gentlemen. Wait a minute, Jeff. Scott Valentine? You mean Nick from Family Ties, Mallory's boyfriend? Yes, that's Scott Valentine. And does Scott have a story to share with us? Scott Valentine, before his big break as Nick, was in a horrible car accident. He was literally dead and brought back to life. He shares this incredible story with us of coming back, persevering, never giving up, and finding success. You're going to love it. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. Speaking of amazing journeys, I hope you didn't miss episode 66 with Keith Famey, celebrity chef, Survivor contestant from Survivor Outback, season two of Survivor, and now amazing documentary filmmaker. We talked about a lot of amazing stories he's putting to film, stories of amazing people that he's sharing with everyone. Definitely check out that episode and then check out the great work Keith is doing. You're going to love it. Speaking of love and stuff, head over to my YouTube channel, search The Jeff Tawaskin Show on YouTube, give us a follow, check out Crossing the Streams, we have all the backlog there, and you're also invited to join us live every Wednesday at 9.30pm Eastern Time. We talk about amazing shows you should be streaming, me and a bunch of friends, it's an amazing treasure trove of information of things that you should be binging and streaming on all the different streaming platforms, so check that out. And when you're done checking that out, and by all means, take your time when checking that out. I don't want to rush you. Head on over to jeffisfunny.com or jefftwaskinshow.com. We're on the World Wide Web. That's right. We're all over the world on this incredible tool called the Internet. You can find us anywhere in the world at jeffisfunny.com. Did I make that sound fancy or what? I think I did. I was pretty excited. It's all about tone and confidence. Okay, anyway, so head over to my website, and from my website, you can do so many cool and exciting and fun things, things you just get ready. Hold on to your socks. One, sign up for my mailing list. Two, buy me a coffee. That's right, I love coffee. You know it, you know it. I love it even more when someone else buys it for me. Three, click on follow the Jeff DeWaskin Show and follow me on one or multiple podcast apps. It's totally free. Doesn't cost any more for you to follow me on Spotify and Amazon and CastBox as it is if you just pick one. So following all of them in case any of those fail, then you have a lot of backups. Four, you can listen to any episode of Fly from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin show on my website. All the episodes are there. Each episode has its own glorious web page on the World Wide Web. And I think that's it. But that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot for you to do. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right, this is one of my favorite parts of the show where I get to share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you so that we can all be masters of the social medias. Today's a pretty straightforward tip. The tip is when structuring content for your social media, when you're trying to get people interested in what you're talking about, 
make sure it's engageable. What do I mean by that? Make it something that people are going to want to respond to or reply to or share. That's way more important than likes. Likes are kind of an easy way for people to just kind of say, yeah, it's not so bad. But if you can really get people to stop and engage, comment and share, then you know you're doing something special. Instagram, ask a question. Get people talking underneath the post. On Twitter, get something that people can share but also respond to. Get a conversation going. When you get a good conversation going, then you know you're on to something special. And those are the real people that are really engaged and interested in what you have to say and what you're doing. That's it. Easy peasy, right? And that's a social media tip. I do want to take a quick second to thank all of my beautiful listeners for supporting the sponsors week after week. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting the show. And that's how we keep the lights on here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. This week's sponsor is the East Village Book of the Month Club. Act now and get 50% off such classics as Land of the Carnosaurus, Nick's Guide to Winning Over Your Parents, The Ties That Bind, Marrying Your Demon Lover, How to Handle Black Scorpions, All Must Haves, and All Yours for 50% off. Just use the code MOREBOOKS to get your discount. All right. Well, I love books. I could go on and on about books all day. Bookstores are a great place. But I think it's time I shared the conversation I had with Scott Valentine with you. It's like my Valentine to you, my fans. Except it's an interview and not flowers and candy. It's Scott Valentine, not... Anyway, sorry. Uh, that sounded a lot better in my head as I was working it out. And then as it came out, I realized I'm just going to get right to the interview. Scott Valentine's journey is incredible. I can't wait for you to hear all about it. Enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest. I'm very excited to have here actor Scott Valentine. You know him as Mallory's boyfriend from Family Ties. <laughs> <laughs> He's so amazing. And we're here and we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. So, hey, Scott, how are you doing? Thanks for coming to the Mr. Dwoskin, thank you kindly for having me. I am so happy to have you. <laughs> thank you. So, Scott, before we get into the, some of the iconic stuff you did, how did you get into acting in the first place? What got you the bug? I was through college or high school. I worked for the Gannett News Organization, was the sports editor for the local newspaper or assistant sports editor. There was a job in Guam to be the sports editor for the Guam Journal, little newspaper that served the military base over there. And they asked me if I wanted to go. And I was like, yeah, sure. I don't want to go to college. I'll go to Guam and have sex with Guamian babes. Beautiful. And then there was an attempted coup d'etat about a month before I graduated high school. And I thought, well, screw this. I'm not going to Guam. Went to the local community college, had no idea what the hell I was doing. The first semester, I had about a 1.8 GPA. Second semester, I had a 1.3 GPA. It was totally lost. Auditioned for a play, got a part, liked it. And then I realized the same research I was doing for the play, I could actually write that up and use it as a thesis for one of my whatever lit classes or history classes or something. I just retitle it. Kind of liked it. And then auditioned again and got another part and liked it more. Not only was I getting better grades, I was getting more dates. And I thought, what could make this better? Money. I auditioned to try to attend the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Uh, ACT, the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, and Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Got accepted at all of them and uh, chose the academy because it was, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump from where I grew up. 
the rest is history. There's more to the history, I think. So well, that's, no, that's it. We didn't do anything else. Nothing that's else. It. All right. That's well, thank it. you very much. It's been okay, great talking. Have a good night. <laughs> that's good what, night, Detroit. <laughs> that has been Scott Valentine. It was enjoyed that <laughs> retrospect. So it's interesting when you do interviews because you start to you know certain things and then you start to learn certain things as you kind of dive in. As you were starting to become Scott Valentine actor, or you're getting some movie auditions and a soap opera, you got into a horrible accident and that kind of sidetracked you for a while. Yeah, I, I went to the academy, graduated, was just loved, loved, loved going to the academy. Got out of the academy, started working at the actor's studio. I don't know if you know, the famous actor's studio was in class with guys like Al Pacino, being taught by Elia Kazan, was loving life as not an actor. I, I was a thespian. I was a tragedian, Jeffrey. Started auditioning, was doing a lot of plays. And then got offered a role in uh, Lords of Discipline, feature film for Paramount. Got offered a part on one of the soap operas. I can't remember which one, one with the name World in it. And my agent was like, you got to take the soap. I was like, I want to do the movie. He said, come on, come to the office. Let's talk about it. So I was riding my bike north on 8th Avenue in Manhattan. Got to the corner of 8th and 42nd. Stopped at the red light. Truck driver in the truck to the right of me. Uh, he and I got into a verbal altercation because when a young woman was crossing in front of the truck going from the east side of 8th Avenue to the west side of 8th Avenue, he popped the clutch to make a jerk forward, of which he then scared her, scared the little girl in her left hand. There was a baby in the stroller, and they started laughing like, wow, isn't this fun? And I turned and gave him my best, my best F you look. And he turned and said, what's your effing problem? And I said, what's my effing problem? What's your problem? And he's like, fuck you. And I said, fuck you. I said, yeah, you're a big man. You're going to run over a woman and her kid. And at that time, the woman had crossed the street. And he's like, fuck you. I said, uh, you know, you're, you're just, you're an effing idiot. And he said, fuck you. Tried, went to open his door to get out. And the light turned green. So I took off on my bike. And between 42nd and 43rd, he ran me from behind, flipped me up in the air. Front tire ran over me. Then I got trapped into the back tires and pushed for a block and a half up to 44th Street. And a guy who had heard me screaming was a nickel and dime drug dealer, heard me screaming and ran and jumped on the running board and started punching the driver to get him to stop. The driver stopped. Partly he stopped because he couldn't get over me. I could tell he had put the clutch in again, tried to downshift to get more torque to get over me and couldn't. Thank God, because I had wondered if he did get over me. I would be there in the middle of 8th Avenue and more cars would have run over. And then the guy who got him to stop came back, said, you know, talking in a very thick Puerto Rican accent. You know, what do you want, man? What do you want? And I was like, can you get him? Just get him back the truck, back it off of me. And what he did. And the guy came back and he's like, you know, what, what do you want, man? What do you want? And I'm like, just let me hold your hand. Let me hold your hand. And then I said, get him. Can you get him to turn the truck off? Because for some reason, I thought I assumed I was bleeding somewhere in, a, in a, my right upper thigh and my buttocks, my gluteus maximus in the lower part of my back, all the skin had been dragged off. And for some reason, I thought the exhaust from the truck was going to give me cancer. I don't, the weirdest things go through your head, you know. Then I heard sirens. And when the sirens got closer, the guy who had saved my life said to me that he had to get out of there because him and the cops didn't get along so well. And he took off. And the next thing I know, there was a cop holding my hand coming again. I'm like, let me hold your hand. Let me hold your hand. And you know, sometimes when you're in such pain, like you knock your knee on the edge of the table or something and you go like, ah, and I went to bite, just bite 
almost bit his hand. He's like, don't bite my hand. It was funny when the ambulance came. I always, I always wanted to ride in the ambulance. I always wanted to be in an ambulance and have the sirens and lights going. So we'd make this sea of cars. Heart in Manhattan. It wasn't fun. It hurt. It was taken to St. Clair's Hospital, 52nd Street between 9th and 10th. It's no longer there. Died in the emergency room. Died. They brought me back. This leg, my left leg was up in the middle of my back. My pelvis was in 32 pieces and my left hip and left femur were smashed. I was in ICU for two weeks, I think 18 days total in the hospital for about three months. Uh, Got out, went back to my parents' house up in Saratoga Springs, New York to convalesce. And after being there, I mean, I love my parents. My dad's dead now. My mom's still alive. She's a sweetheart at 87, all four foot, six inches of her. And uh, it's funny. She's this little, little, you know, and she used to, she used to put the fear of God in all of us. She used to beat the shit out of all of us. After being there, September, like, I think January, February, I just, I'd had enough. I, I was doing therapy every day, going to the local wine, having aquatic therapy. But in my mind, I just, I had to get back to New York. I had to get back because the movie Lords of Discipline had been delayed. And I communicated with Frank Rodham. And I'm like, I'm coming back, man. I'm going to do it. I never got back. It took me two years to eventually have an artificial femur and hip and a little bit of my pelvis put in so I could actually walk normal without looking. You know, I had a terrible gait. It was, I had to throw my leg until then to be able to walk. But after two months of being with my parents, it was just, you know, the, the old adage, you can't go home. Well, love my mom and dad, but I just couldn't take being in the house with them. So moved back to New York. Started auditioning again and uh, went to therapy, went to rehab. Eventually, when I got my new parts put in, two years later, uh, I started auditioning, which was funny in the interim. I never told anybody this sort of in an interview. I did do a play in the interim there with my bad leg when I still, and I was getting around with crutches. And the, the casting director on that play was George Ann Walken, Chris Walken's wife. She used to pick me up at my apartment every day in Upper West Side and drive me down to the theater on um, 27th Street. It was very, just a little little funny story. And, and when I was doing aquatic therapy, I was trying to find a pool where I could swim where nobody would hit me and find a pool also where it wasn't the, the general swim. I don't know if you've ever gone to a Y like that, especially in New York, and there's only certain hours that you can go in and do laps. And you got all these losers that think they were the next uh, Michael Phelps and just wanted to go over you. Dude, <laughs> I know the Olympics is waiting for you to give you your medal. Just go around me. And went to the uh, manager of the Y and I said, you know, I told him what had happened. And how my, my leg and my hip, my pelvis were very uh, involved, as they say. And I said, can I please, you know, just there's a time with the pool where nobody's in there. I've seen it. Can I just go in? And eventually he, he caved and he said, you know, you'll go in there. But there's one other guy. There's this one other guy. When you go in the pool. You don't look at him. You don't talk to him. You don't mess with him. You just go in, you do your laps, you get out, you leave him alone. But then one other guy was Chris Walken. And I didn't know it. I'd been going there for about, I don't know, maybe a month. Have you ever done laps in the pool for exercise? In school. It was horrible. So you know. You're, you're not looking left or right. You're not concerned with who else is in the pool. You know, you come up the end of the pool, you do your flip, you go back the other way, blah, blah. And every time I would pull up to rest, I would make certain the guy would either be, you know, over here or over there. And I made sure, don't look, don't look. And so one day I pulled up, I'm standing there, you know, because I had to get in and out. I was still using crutches. Hey, what happened to your leg? I can't, I can't do a Chris walking. Hey, 
what the happened? <laughs> I can't either. <laughs> and this guy's asking me, like, you know, what happened to your leg? What's going on? Why do you got the crutches? Why do you always, you know, you've done the crutches for a long time? It was Chris Walken. I mean, he's very cool. Okay. It was very sweet. And it was just, it was like a little, you know, just a little teeny, teeny tiny touch of like uh, being in the presence of a great actor. I think he's a phenomenal talent. You know, it was, it was very funny that he's in the pool doing laps. And I couldn't even say, you know, your wife comes and picks me up and takes me to rehearsals, which was funny. I was just, I was so awestruck. Did they ever make that connection? Never with either one. Never, never. I was, what, 24 about, you know, I was still pretty, I was rather daunted by, he had done, what was that movie with Bobby De Niro? Deer Hunter? You know, actor studio. I mean, this guy, he was like, you know, he was a god in front of me. So you got out of the pool. What was the next steps to getting back into acting? Went for a uh, an audition on a film with Paul Newman and Robbie Benson to play Robbie Benson's buddy. And, you know, go the initial, meet the assistant casting director and then the assistant again, then the casting director and the assistant, then go meet the, the, the one of the producers. And after about eight auditions doing the same material, it was like, okay, now you're meeting the director and the producer and it's you and one other guy went in, got done, did the scene, two scenes. And the director and the producer seemed genuinely interested. You never know, because you go to so many auditions, you know, and they'll say, well, Jeff, that was lovely. Thank you so much. It was really special. And you never hear shit again. It's like, what the fuck? I was so special. You don't want to call me? At the end of the audition, the director and the producer seemed, seemed what I thought was genuinely interested. And the casting director, who had seen me at least six times, said, didn't something happen to you? Weren't you in an accident? And I thought, oh, no. Don't you have fake parts? Isn't there something with your hip? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a hip guy. I'm cool. No, you had an accident. Well, we all have accidents. You're like this morning, I walked into the the coffee table. I hit my foot. No, you had an accident. You were hurt. She's like, you got fake parts in you, don't you? You're like a tinker toy. We can't hire him. He's like a tinker toy. He's going to fall apart on the set. So it was at that moment where I realized I've got to leave New York. I got to go to L.A. Didn't want to go to L.A. You know, I wanted to be a trained actor. I wanted to do plays 10 months out of 12 and the other two months do a film so I could be paid enough money to pay my rent the rest of the year and do plays. But New York and the acting community is a pretty small little pool and everybody knows what everybody's doing. L.A. was a new venture, a new place. So I finally said, you know, screw it. Got to go to L.A. where nobody knows about this. And I was lucky enough, the guy who was my agent decided to open an office in L.A., went out pretty much right after he opened the office. He was a great guy. Michael Schlesinger stuck by me like blood. He sent me out. Sometimes I'd be 20 auditions in a week again and again and again and again. And after 10 months, I got family ties, you know, just kept auditioning and auditioning. And his disposition, and I'll say for any any aspiring actor out there, you just got to keep stepping up to the plate. You got to keep trying because eventually you will get your shot. Eventually. Eventually, either you'll be good enough or you'll fool somebody where they'll let you in front of the camera and you'll get your turn. And I knew I just needed to get bankable to go where I could then have value and nobody would ask me about the accident. It's horrible that they they did that to you in New York, though. Every, I guess everything happens for a reason. The universe sends signs and you know, that sent you to LA. I do have one question. When it comes to the accident, did you come out of that with different philosophies? I mean, obviously to get through something like that, where they pretty much thought maybe you wouldn't walk again or anything like that is a tremendous amount of willpower and dedication and focus. 
what did you kind of take away from that? And sort of probably, I'm guessing to this day, did you gain any new mantras from all that? Yes, very much so. I was a pretty positive person before being run over. I think my cheery, rosy disposition helped me get through being in traction for, you know, 52 days and then being told you'll never walk. You're going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life. So we grew up in a house where you never gave up. But after being run over and going through that, it helped me many a times of going, just never give up. Believe in yourself. Eventually, keep trying. Don't keep trying the same way. You don't want to define insanity. Keep trying. Don't give up. And and as I have said to my sons, uh, I've got four beautiful sons. That was another thing I was told I could never have children. And I've said to other folks, just don't give up. So it it truly gives you the mantra, don't give up. Believe, Believe in yourself. And the other mantra, many a times I've been in some sticky situations where it's like, well, this is not as bad as being run over by a truck. Could be worse. Getting a ticket from the police or going through my divorce, that was fun. (laughs) It, It gives you the ability to go, nothing is worse than, and this will pass. Everything passes. People need to know that. People think when they get into situations that, you know, when people say, oh, I'm fucked. Don't use that. Don't use that. Then you will be, and you are, and you're reiterating that, and you're sending that into the universe. You know, just know everything is momentarily, even those moments of bliss, those moments of pure joy. They're only for a few moments, so so love them. Drink them in. Swim in them. And know, you know, life ebbs and flows. It goes up, it goes down. It goes up, it goes down. Have faith. Be patient. Just keep digging. Keep fighting. Keep, keep on keeping on. Excellent. Thank you, Scott Valentine. Thank you, Jeff Dwoskin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now your family ties, and you, you were on seasons... Four, five, six, seven. You're Mallory's boyfriend. You've gone to the Fancy Acting Academy, and now you're playing Nick, a monosyllabic, Stallone-ish type <laughs> character. <laughs> I went from doing Shakespeare and Congreve and Wickley to grunting and getting paid a lot of money to grunt, so yeah. And killer hair. Let's not not, (laughs) not gloss the hair there. (laughs) Hair is still there. It's a little bit grayer and a lot shorter. So No, you you still got a good head of hair. It's good. It's of the times now, too. As as Nick's was of those times. (laughs) Let's spill some tea. What was it like working on Family Ties? Family Ties was part of one of the greatest NBC lineups, I think, ever. And it was one of those shows that I think everyone watched. Michael J. Fox got his start on that. Justine Bateman, who played Mallory, your girlfriend. Her brother still acts and is extremely well-known now, Jason Bateman. Team The Others and Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter. It was such an amazing group. And like the dynamics of that show were just so great. You came in. How did they welcome you? Because there are three seasons in. You come in in season four. How was that coming into like such an established working family like that? I knew of Michael Fox. I did not own a television at the time. Uh, you remember, I was, I was a thespian, a tragedian. We don't watch TV. When I auditioned for the show, I didn't really know it. I think I knew of it, but hadn't watched it. It wasn't, you know, 20, what was I when I got on the show? 20, 27. I was 27. Wow. Wow. But still being like, you know, a theater rat. When I got on the show, first episode I taped, I think, was in August. Back to the Future had come out in July. Teen Wolf came out in August. So you're walking onto a set where, with a guy that has the number one and number two movie in the country. It was pretty cool. I remember 
going to the sound stage, walking to the support stage, and then going through the support stage and asking people like, where do I go? I'm here for the table read and where and people are like, oh, yeah, I walk through that door over there. Yeah, yeah you go over there. And, and nobody knew that I was this week's guest character and walking through the, the huge fire door that separated the stage from the support stage. And there was a table. There were people laughing and joking and walking, you know, getting settled in with their cup of coffee and their their scone or their Danish or whatever. And folks sitting down, I walked up and introduced myself. A guy who eventually became a friend, Rick Allen. And it's like, oh, yeah, you sit over here. And there was, you know, Gary Goldberg, Alan Uger, Michael Whitehorn, some other writer producers. There was that Fox guy. It was that Baxter, Meredith Baxter woman that had been on TV for years. Justine, Tina, Michael Fox, Michael Gross. And then when I was introduced, this week's guest character being played by Scott Valentine, everybody was so warm and so gracious. Now, coming from New York and doing theater, that's the way everybody, you know, doing theater in New York, everybody hugged. Everybody hugged. Everybody loved each other. We're here to put on a show. Let's work together. Let's do our best. So I thought that was just the natural way that the rest of the business was. Before Gary Goldberg died, he was the executive producer, the, the showrunner of Family Ties, the gentleman who created the show. I would say to him, you know, you set me up because I thought every Hollywood experience was going to be as loving and as kind and as nurturing as Family Ties. And obviously it's not. On that show, it was really like family. They treated not just me, but everybody, everybody that came through the door and whether it was Tom Hanks doing a guest starring role. Folks that weren't so big at the time, but went on to such great things. Michael Gross, Michael Fox, Meredith Baxter Burney, Justine Bateman, Tina Yothers, Mark Price. Everybody was always very gracious and very embracing. Wonderful, wonderful environment. I loved it because it was very theater-esque. You know, to do the table read was something that was germane to my existence. To do the rehearsals in a sort of a proscenium setting was very germane to what I had done. And then when we taped, that was a little bit, I, I had never done a four camera show before because taping a show like that is very loose compared to doing film. You know, film, they, they start with a, a very wide lens, an 18, then a 25, and then a 50, and then a, a 85, and then a 100, and it gets tighter and tighter. In film, you're like in this own, your own little Petri dish or this little microcosm. It was great on a sitcom four camera proscenium set because it was like doing theater, which I loved and still love. Everybody was so cool. I was not a comedic actor. I, I didn't know comedy. And to have somebody like Michael Fox there to to help you and coach you, walk you through sort of the rhythm of comedy, pretty cool. I was very lucky. I'm still very appreciative and, and never wanted to have a capricious disposition and, and, and say, well, I deserve this, you know. Well, you worked hard. I mean, you came back from the dead to get it. So I'd say you, were, you earned it. There's a lot of folks running around and they think, well, don't I deserve? Well, can't I have? Nobody owes anybody anything. They don't. You owe your children to raise them and love them and, and try to teach them to be the best humans you can. You owe your significant other, your wife, your husband, whomever it is, your partner. You owe them to be respectful and, and to be a whole individual. But beyond that, nobody owes anybody anything. They don't. You know, there's that expression... Jeff, that a fish stinks from the head. It either smells really good or it smells really bad. And Gary Goldberg was the head. And this fish smelled as sweet as a bouquet of roses. It was just, it was a wonderful, 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 supportive, loving environment. So how did you go from one guest spot to 
hanging around for the rest of the seasons. <laughs> Got lucky. <laughs> Got lucky. Kept my mouth shut and uh, remembered my lines and hit my mark. No, it was the, the first episode. I think when it was written initially, it was sort of Stephen and Lee's going, boy, we dodged that bullet. Good thing Justine came to her, Mallory came to her senses. The day that we were taping, where they did hair and makeup, the, the principal cast, their dressing rooms were under the, the raised rake stage where the audience sat. And in that same sort of like tunnel-like environment was the hair and makeup room for the principals. For the guest starring folks, you were in the hallway and all this hubbub going on and blah, 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 blah. I remember sitting in the uh, makeup chair and Gary Goldberg walking up and putting his arm on me like, you okay, you good, you ready to go? I'm like, yeah. He's like, listen, um, wanted to, uh, wanted to ask you something. And I thought, okay, how do you, <laughs> how do you change the spark plugs in your uh, 351 Cleveland? And he asked, he said, uh, you know, we kind of, kind of like having you around here. You're, you're having some fun with you. What would you think about coming back again? Maybe doing another one or two or whatever of these. And I was like, yeah, sure. Cool. Okay. Jeff, I had no idea the power of television. I had no idea that it would lead to what it led to. I had really, I was going, it was like, here's your gig. You're in and out one week, do a good job, shut up and just be a gentleman. Tape the show. They had contacted my agent the next week and said, you know, we'd like him. We'd like to have him back. And my agent was thrilled. I was thrilled, but I didn't realize until the first episode aired I think about a month after we taped it. Remember that Thursday night lineup went from Cosby to Family Ties to Cheers to Wings to St. Elsewhere. Killer lineup for NBC. They, they trounced everybody at that time. And that was Brandon Tartikoff picking what shows and his genius. Him nurturing the showrunners and the showrunners nurturing their, their cast. Because if you look at those shows, if you look at Cheers, Cosby, Family Ties, Wings, I believe from what I've been told, you know, secondhand from folks that worked on the shows, there was that nurturing, loving environment as well. Before we knew that Bill Cosby was a kind of creepy, predatory sexual guy, he was very loving of his cast and his members. And he was one of the producers, one of the owners, and he made sure everybody was taken care of. That's sort of the, the odd uh, juxtaposition of his existence. But that existed also in Cheers and it existed on, on Wings. The first episode aired, I think it was three weeks, a month later. And literally the next day, I remember going to a uh, audio store, you know, for car audio and stereos in your house and just being kind of not mob, but just like, wow. And in the parking lot. And then when I walked out of the store to go back to the parking lot, just I don't want to say assaulted, but just people were like, hey, wow, I saw you on TV. Yeah, it snowballed to the effect of where it got kind of got a little crazy, a little bit much, a little bit. You know, I think every actor, every musician, every star athlete that, that makes mega million contracts, guys like uh, LeBron James, I think he knows that his money comes from his audience, his fans. I'm not so sure Michael Jordan bought into that as well, or maybe Kobe Bryant. I don't know other guys that were other greats in that league. As a talent in the living arts, and part of that is being filmed and being giving that to the, the, the public, you got to know that's part of your gig. That's, that's part of that you're going to, you need to deal with that in public. Did it get uncomfortable times? Sure. Was it inconvenient at times? Yeah, but I think you, I always tried to be gracious and, and, and be appreciative. This one time, my ex-wife and I, we were traveling and my two sons were, I think about three and one. And we were changing uh, 
flights in Chicago. You know how big that airport is. And we were literally going from one terminal to the other. And the flight from L.A. to Chicago was delayed. And then to be able to catch our flight was like a sprint, you know, with, with strollers and baby diaper bags and carry-on luggage and a breast pump and all that. And I think one of the gate agent from the the connect the initial flight was kind enough to call to the gate agent on the connecting flight and say these other passengers are coming and it probably helped being on a hit TV show at the time. But as we're going, we're more and more having more and more fans that are stopping and hey, can I have your autograph? And hey, I was like, oh yeah, I gotta catch a flight, gotta catch a flight. And as we got to the gate, I was holding my second son, Shaler, who was about a year, maybe nine months, and he. He decided to pass his bowels at that moment. And it was rather robust. And uh, getting to the gate, I said to the gate agent, I said, you know, he just pooed and we're going to get on the plane and I know it's going to stink. And I really, I don't want, can I have just two minutes? Give me two minutes to change his diaper. My wife will get on and the nanny and with all the sundry of stuff, let me change the diaper and then we can put it in the garbage can out here. And she's like, yeah, got it. Found like a table, you know, right near the gate. There's no real convenient place. And I'm changing my son's diaper and more and more people are coming. And like, we sign this and we sign that here, sign this, sign that. I remember getting pissed at me. Oh my God, let me change my child's diaper. Let me change his diaper. What, you want me to sign that with fecal matter? They're holding the plane for me, please. Then it was just a little bit zany. It's crazy. Yeah, you know, whenever I see, I love meeting celebrities, but if I notice that they're in a certain situation, like with their kid or eating or changing poop, I would never approach them. So let me let me ask you a question, though, because I know uh, our time is limited, but I do want to get to one other thing. So your character goes from one episode to 41, but it becomes so popular, so popular, they want to spin it off into its own show. So they tried three times three attempts of making a spinoff for you, right? And one first time, one of the, the main characters sadly passes away. Hershey Bernardi, great guy. Great guy. The second one, you're in a juvenile thing and they realize, all right, that's just not jiving. And then the third one, uh, The Art of Being Nick, which I watched. So you were with Julia Louise Dreyfus pre-Seinfeld. She was actually really great. You were too. And it does really well. I mean, it scores well. And it was it was cute. It was cute. You move in with your sister, bond with her son, calls you Uncle Nick at the end. And you're like, yeah, what happened? I mean, what kept it from not getting picked up? The first of many Hollywood lessons I was to be taught. We shot the show. Went, I think, well, Julia was a sweetheart. Ray Baker, if you look at his resume, had a great, you know, great resume. Christine Sutherland, who played my sister, they edit it, they test it, it tests really high. Everybody keeps saying, oh, they're going to pick it up, they're going to pick it up. You know, that hubbub, they start ordering, you know, publicity photo sessions. And the next, there's nothing. The show's dead. What happened? Nobody tells me what happens, right? They air the show in the middle of the summer, they throw it on, on prime time, it gets a 47 share which means that 47% of the available television audience is watching that show, which was still in that day and age, pretty phenomenal. Considering that Family Ties typically averaged around like a 42, Cosby was like a 44, right? So 47%. And I still, I'm just confused. I don't know what, what the hell happened. And a couple of years later, me and Bruce Helford are out for lunch. And we go back to his office after, and Bruce Helford was the showrunner, the grand poopa on the show, although it was Gary's company, Ubu Productions. Bruce was the man, the guy. Now, Bruce Alfred had gone on to showrun Roseanne Barr show, Drew Carey show, Charlie Sheen show, the Roseanne Barr show again, probably some other shows that I can't think of at this moment. 
Bruce is very good at what he does. He's a very sweet guy, very intelligent, very funny, very empathetic. And he says to me at the end of lunch, yeah, it's a real shame Gary and Brandon got into that fight, isn't it? I'm like, what fight? Because you know that fight about our show. What fight? What show? Gary Goldberg's company, Ubu Productions, had signed a deal with NBC Productions to produce more sitcoms for NBC. All of Gary's shows at that time shot at the Paramount lot, where we shot. Part of the deal with NBC Productions was that they had to shoot at NBC Studios in Burbank. When you're an actor and you go to work, if you show up at this hour, they have to feed you within six hours or they get a heavy fine. It's called meal penalty. First time I was on Family Ties and we were shooting and they came up to me at a certain point and said, we're, we're going to go into penalty. Will you waive your meal penalty? I'm like, what's meal penalty? It was explained to me, you know, you got to feed everybody every six hours. And if you don't, the show gets fined every 15 minutes. And that fine goes up exponentially every 15 minutes and becomes very weighty. And it's to protect actors because there's a lot of schmuck producers that would just keep working everybody. You know, nobody gets a break. So they had gotten to that point on the show that Gary was doing the first show with NBC Productions at Burbank. And the show hadn't been going well. And it was finally working and they were finally happening. The stage manager, first AD, whatever the title was, said, well, time for meal. And Gary's like, no, 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 we're, we're doing good. Let's go, let's go. And they're like, no, we got a break. Now, if it was at Paramount with Gary's crew, everybody would say, yeah, I'll waive my penalty. And Gary's always made sure everybody got a little something extra in their envelope at the end of the week, the end of the month, the end of the year, whatever it was. Up at NBC, this crew didn't know Gary from Adam. He was just another schmo. And they were like, I want to eat. I'm going to eat. And Brandon Tartikoff came up and said, Gary, just relax. We'll, we'll get it. And Gary's like, no, I want to go. And Brandon's like, relax. And Gary's like, no, I want to go. And Brandon said, look, we'll get it after lunch. And Gary and Brandon got into an argument. And the argument went from hollering to shoving each other. And at one point, somebody said, I don't know if Gary said, well, you can't have my show or Brandon said, I don't want your show. And the show was The Art of Being Nick. And I got screwed. The oh, show got God. screwed. That's life. Shit happens. You know, you get back up on the horse, you dust yourself off and you keep riding. Well, at least you had family ties to go back to and continue playing Nick there. Yes, that year, yes. And the next year they were like, want to try another one? I'm like, mm. we tried three times. It hasn't worked. Let's just, and I didn't know. At that point when they had asked at the end of the seven years, do you want to do another I was not told that Gary and Brandon got into a fight. And if I had known that when they were alive, because this was told to me after I would have addressed it in some way, their, their emotions, their petulance cost a lot for other folks, but that's life. I appreciate you sharing all these stories with me, Scott. I know you got to go. I know you got to go, but this is, uh, it's been a ton of fun talking to you. Well, I know you have, you've done a million other things. I apologize we didn't get to them, but maybe you'll come back. I'd like to come back. Brother, thank you very much. I, I very much appreciate it. When I come to Detroit, we've got to go to lunch and tell more tall tales, and I'd love to come back, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Scott Valentine. I know all of you loved him as Nick on Family Ties. So interesting hearing about the politics regarding the spinoff that almost happened. But as Scott said, and everyone take this with you. Never give up. There's always greatness that lies ahead. It was a great story and a great message. And I hope you enjoyed it. And now, as we near the end of the episode, you know what time it is. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags from Hashtag Roundup. You got the app. It's free. Why wouldn't you have it? Go to iTunes or Google Play Store. Download the free Hashtag Roundup app. Follow Hashtag Roundup on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup. 
play along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, The Jeff DeWaskin Show. This week's hashtag comes to us from Weekly Humorist, a weekly game on hashtag Roundup. This week's hashtag, hashtag sizzling sitcoms. That's right, hot sitcoms. It's a mashup game where you take a sitcom and you add a little heat to it. And here are some amazing hashtag sizzling sitcoms. Benson Burner, Barney Griller, Third Walk from the Sun, Muggy Hauser, M.D., Happy Glaze, Parks and Perspiration. These are all some amazing sizzling sitcoms. They're hot. Everyone loves Ray-Ban. Welcome back, Hotter. Green Bakers. In the heat of the night. Grill Marks and Recreation. Bernie Hill. I'd watch any of these hashtag sizzling sitcoms, wouldn't you? It's always sunny side up in Philadelphia. And finally, King of the Grill. All right. All right. Those were some awesome hashtag sizzling sitcoms. I love it. If you want to tweet your own, go and tweet hashtag sizzling sitcoms and tweet your own. In the meantime, all those tweeters will be retweeted at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter and listed in the show notes. Show them some love. Retweet them. Like them. Comment. Tell them you heard their tweet on Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. Well, the hashtag game is over, so you know what that means. I know, it's so sad. We're at the end of episode 67. How did these episodes slip by so fast? I will never understand it. I want to thank my guest once again, Scott Valentine, for joining me. I want to thank all of you for joining me week after week. It means the world to me. I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.